Hello and welcome to Unmasked, a podcast where we challenge widely held assumptions around gender, sexuality and other identities. This podcast unmasks and explores these identities that can sometimes prevent us from fully expressing ourselves. Each week, we take a theme and invite an extra special guest for discussion, deliberation and all other things D-related. I am Charlie Robertson. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the first episode of Our Masks. The first two episodes are going to be dedicated to a conversation I had with the American filmmaker David Wiseman. David is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, teacher, public speaker and longtime activist. He's best known as the producer of the acclaimed documentaries We Were Here and The Coquettes. We Were Here looks at the HIV-AIDS crisis in San Francisco in the early 80s and The Coquettes looks at the rise and fall of San Francisco's legendary theatrical troupe of hippies and drag queens, The Coquettes, in the early 70s. The first part of our conversation looks at David's time in San Francisco, specifically during the AIDS epidemic. Um, We also talk about Harvey Milk, who was the first um, openly gay elected official in the history of California. Um, He was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, but was tragically assassinated in November 1978. So we talk about that period. Um, Obviously, Harvey Milk is a very famous figure. His story has been retold in the 2008 biopic Milk, starring Sean Penn and written by Dustin Lance Black. So in this first episode, we look at David's time in San Francisco, his experience with the AIDS epidemic and the uh, experiences of the people he interviews in his documentary, We Were Here. We also talk about Harvey Milk and the impact he had on San Francisco. Well, well, not just San Francisco, but the whole world as the first openly gay um, elected official in San Francisco. Uh, And then we talk about how Uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic has really affected attitudes towards sex and his thoughts on the younger generation today. So I hope you enjoy and without further ado let's dive straight into the episode. I'm joined today by David Weissman um, who I'll let introduce themselves now. Hi I'm David Weissman and I'm a filmmaker from west coast US from various locales over the decades. Nice to see you um, and not welcome to Amsterdam, you've already been here a couple of weeks, but welcome back, because I know you've just you. been in Oslo at a film festival. Um, to start us off, I always do a little icebreaker, um, and it normally revolves around a game, So, but I give you a choice today. So either you can pl- play this game, which is kind of based on San Francisco LGBT history and pop quiz, uh, or you can tell me a story from your, how long did you live in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco years? from 1976 until 2004. Okay, so, so long period long of time. Long time. With rich his- LGBT history. Very rich, <laughs> yeah. So you can tell me a story. It can be anything from just a fun anecdote um, to like... I'll do the game. You know, do the game. Do I get points? I mean, do I... Uh, no, I think... And you may find this very easy or you may find... It, I don't... I think it's... I don't know. So we'll start. <laughs> we shall see. We shall it, see. It may just be a test of my memory yeah. more than a test of my knowledge. And it's 10 questions. All right. Uh, and most of them are, are San Francisco based, but then I do kind of broaden out at the end. Okay. Okay. I'll help so I don't start. embarrass myself by not knowing something absolutely <laughs> crucial. I'm sure you won't. Okay. So the first question is, when was the first gay bar open in San Francisco and what was it called? Oh my God. That's a tough one. I have no idea. Um, S- Okay. Are you going uh, to tell me? Yeah, I'll tell you. So it was in 1908, 
and the Dash was the first notorious gay bar in San Francisco. The city may have had other gay bars before the Dash, but none were visible. Um, waiters cross-dressed, and for one dollar, which was a huge amount at the time, um, you could they would perform sex acts in, in nearby booths. Um, it was shut down by the Vice Squad almost as soon as it opened, after a high-profile judge was linked to the bar. So. Well, that probably would have been in an area known as the Barbary Coast, which was the kind of Actually, vice neighborhood of San Francisco. So, yeah. Um, yeah, well, good. I, I'm going to learn something here, so I'll sit quietly and get a lesson. Okay, the next one actually is a bit random. Uh, do you know when the first lesbian organization was established in San Francisco? It uh, would have been the Daughters of Belitis. Yes. Uh, uh, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. Yes. Uh, and that was uh, sort of a parallel group to the Mattachine Society, which was a, yeah. the first gay male organization um, that started. And these were both in the 1950s. Yeah, very, very good. It was 1955, mm -hmm. um, the Daughters of Um Do you know when the first Pride Parade was in San Francisco? Yeah, it would have been 71. Well, there were two, actually. Mm. that had, There was one that was sort of considered to be a gay parade, but I yeah. think, I'm pretty sure it was 71, because the first one in New York was um, in 1970. Yeah, so this says, well, I think you're actually right, because it says 1970 was the first pride, gay pride parade, but it was very small. So maybe like the most official one was the next year. Well, it also was not called gay pride. Right. Um, in New York, it was the Stonewall, the Christopher Street uh, yeah. parade. And in San Francisco, it was called um, Gay Freedom Day. Yeah. And it was called Gay Freedom Day really until the early 80s when it got changed to pride. Yes. Okay, very good. Um, do you know when... Okay. Do you know when the first openly gay bar was established and what was its name? What do you mean by openly? So from what I understand, gay bars were required to instill, install blackened windows or have no windows at all prior to this bar. Right. The first window with, uh, with windows that yeah. was completely open to the street was the Twin Peaks, which yes. is still there at the corner of uh, Market and Castro. Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do you know what year it was established? No, but I think it was in the 60s. It was 1972. So, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was earlier I've... than that. Yeah, but it was probably the first real gay bar in the yes. Castro. Uh, the prior gay neighborhood had been Polk Street, and then uh, the, there was a migration out of the Polk Street neighborhood into the Castro. Into the Castro. Yeah, a lot of hippies, gay, gay right. hippies. And why, was the, why did that move happen? Because of the hippies? I think to some degree, uh, yeah, just things started to shift. The Polk Street stayed gay, yeah. but it was sort of expanding into the Castro. And I think okay. to some degree it was partially because hippies were being uh, were moving out of what had been the hippie neighborhood which was the Haight-Ashbury okay. uh, neighborhood in San Francisco yeah. and a lot of the gay hippies wound up moving over towards Castro Street for some reason and the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood is where the coquettes kind of yes the Haight-Ashbury was sort of the epicenter of yeah. the whole hippie psychedelic counterculture in the 1960s okay. that the the neighborhood Haight-Ashbury was famous around the world yes okay when was the first World AIDS Day I think it probably was 1984, but I'm not sure. And actually, no, that probably wasn't... Are you talking about a United Nations World AIDS Day? Uh, that's a good point. I actually don't know. But I just know the, when the first World AIDS Day was observed in San Francisco. That I don't know, but there was the first candlelight vigil, I think, was in 1984. But I don't know what the first World AIDS Day would have been. Uh, well, yeah, that's a good point. But I think this says 1994 was the first official observance of World AIDS Day. 94? Yeah. Wow. But maybe that's what you're talking about. It's kind of more an official That would probably be World a global. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, maybe the visuals yeah. in San Francisco would be different. Okay, this actually was very confusing for me. I had to do a lot of back <laughs> background research into this next question, and I'm sure you can educate me. 
do you know when the first same-sex marriage licenses were issued in San Francisco? Well, they were when Gavin Newsom was mayor, and it was before it was actually legal officially. So, um, I don't know, 2007? So, first same-sex marriage licenses were issued on, two, in two, on 2004, sorry, in 2004, um, by longtime San Franciscans Del Martin and Phyllis right. uh, Lyon. Uh, became the first same-sex legal couple to be married in the U.S., but it's quite confusing because then, um, well, this will lead me on to my next question. But this is kind of pre that it being fully legalized in the states. Yes. It was kind of a, um, I don't know, provocation by San Fr- the city of San Francisco. Well, it was the mayor Gavin Newsom right. at the time, and I don't remember exactly what his justification was, but he he sort of found some legal justification legal for doing gay right. marriages in San Francisco, and I I do remember the Dell and Phyllis. Ah, okay. From the Daughters of Belitis were the first ones to marry. So do you know when same-sex was finally legalized in California? Oh, gosh. You're asking <laughs> me... I mean, I'm quite a date. It's all dates. It's like, it's like know, history it's class. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, again, there were multiple phases there of this multiple. because it was yeah. before the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court right. ruled on it. So think there was legal, then there was ruled yes. illegal. And so, yeah. I don't know, maybe 2008? So same-sex marriage was legalized in 2008 for five months yeah. until voters approved a ban in November of the same year. After the U.S. Supreme Court refused to recognize the legal standing of same-sex marriage opponents on June 26, 2013, the ban was no longer enforceable, allowing same-sex marriages to recommence starting on June 28th. So there seems this kind of back and forth um, over like a 10-year period, but actually 2013 when it's kind of became fully legal. Sorry, I realise now these are super date-heavy. <laughs> okay, do you know where um, Harvey Milk was born and what his first job was? Well, he was from New York, and I know yeah. he was... I, I doubt that it was his first job, because I assume he probably made hot dogs or right. worked as a waiter, yeah. but he was a stockbroker in New York, but he also worked in theatre. Yeah, He was very involved in theatre um, and stuff, and he was kind of a East Coast uh, hippie to some degree, too. He grew yeah. his hair long, and when he came to San Francisco, he still was kind of a long-haired kind of okay. rebel but I think uh, I think he was a stockbroker he was however his first kind of job post university was actually in the navy uh-huh. so in he joined the he enlisted in the navy in 1951 to attend officer candidate school in Newport Rhode Island and served as a diving instructor and chief petty officer aboard the USS Kitty Wake during the Korean War until his honourable discharge in 1955 well there you go yeah there you go um, sorry, another date question. <laughs> dates are not... I know a lot about San Francisco queer history, but date, dates are not going to be my strength. We've I'll, done really I'll well. failed the test on dates. We've done pretty well, to be honest. Okay. Um, the next one is about Oregon. Do you know... Again, it has quite a murky history with same-sex marriage. Do you know when it was legalized? Well, I'm pretty sure in Oregon it would have been through a court case that my friend Lake actually uh, filed against the state. Um but that was based on one of the Supreme Court cases. But that would have been uh, also in the late, in I don't know, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But it's you know again, it's very murky. I mean, it's these very murky. have ups and it's downs and ins and outs, and they're legal and then they're illegal. Yeah. But it was done. It was essentially uh, the laws were uh, the existing laws were ruled unconstitutional because of a. A court case filed by an attorney named Lake Paraguay, who was a yeah. friend of mine at the time. Also, well, actually, again, it's very similar. It parallels California quite um, closely. 
um, there were 3,000 same-sex couples um, who were, were issued with marriage licenses in 2004. However, it was not fully recognized in 2014, until 2014. So there's this kind of back and forth process yeah. that we see in California. Um, and finally, do you know who is the first openly gay presidential candidate running for office for the 2020 presidential election? In this election is Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, that was, uh, that's an easy one. That's an easy one. It's kind of an interesting name, isn't it? Yes, it's an impossible name. Um, and yeah, he's the first openly gay Democratic candidate. Um, before that, he served as mayor of South Bend in Indiana. Well, there was a drag queen candidate named Joan Jett Black okay. uh, who ran for president, I think, in the 90s at some point. And, uh, you know, it was a performance art campaign, but Joan Jett Black was kind of a performance artist in San Francisco. And, wow. um, uh, yeah, you can Google Joan Jett Black. Joan Jett Black. Uh, interesting stories. Yeah, an African-American <laughs> cool. drag queen who was quite uh, entertaining. So that concludes the game. I think you did pretty well, to be honest. Oh my I'm God, it was got six or seven. No, I realize this is the second time I've done a game and I always, the first person I did the game with was like, you're a very date-heavy person and I hadn't really. So my historian background is probably why. Um, but thank you very much. So, so you moved in 1976 and, and obviously that's just before Harvey Milk was elected in 1977. Yeah. Did, it, did his election change anything in your everyday life? How did his, or was it more kind of the presence of him and him being an openly gay official, which was kind of more the change in kind of symbolism? Or did you actually see real change in the short time uh, well, he was in office? you know, in a sense, the moving to San Francisco was still a big part of my coming yeah. out process because... Okay. Uh, when I lived in Venice, I I knew lots of gay people and I had a boyfriend, but because I hadn't really found my tribe, right. because coming out was relatively slow. I mean, there's degrees to which one is willing to be visible on the street, For sure, yeah, all of that kind of thing. So I think initially I wasn't even sure I was going to vote for Harvey. I mean, I was still relatively new. Yeah. And I thought of him as sort of maybe more of a moderate type. And I thought, you know, at that point in time, I would vote for the most left wing person, right. no matter who they were. Okay. And there was a guy named Bill Krauss who was a very important political activist. And uh, I think he had a little crush on me, which I only figured out fairly recently. <laughs> but he, I mentioned to him once that I wasn't sure if I was going to vote for Harvey. And he really read me the riot act. And um, it was so impressive, his logic, his passion around the importance of electing Harvey. And I think that conversation, in a way, impacted me even more than Harvey's election. But by the time of the election, uh, you know, I was excited. And there's actually yeah. pictures of me in the back room of Harvey's office on Already? election night. Um, uh, you know, with people who were counting votes and stuff like that. It was a, so it was very exciting. And yeah. it was part of just my own personal sense of being excited about... So it kind of coincided with your own kind of yeah, reckoning of yourself and coming out in that way. Yeah, it overlapped for sure. I read a quote somewhere which said... I think actually it's from Harvey. It said, if a gay can win, it means there is hope that the system can work for all minorities. If we fight, we're giving them hope. So it's kind of, he, he kind of instilling a, a bravery, a hope and aspirations, not just in gay people, but in other people oppressed by. Society. That was completely Harvey's. I mean, not completely, but it was the core of Harvey's message. It was right. you have to come out. We have to be visible because once people know us as individuals and not just as some specter of right. perversion, that they have to see us differently. And so Harvey was very focused on coming out as being the core element. And San Francisco was different than anywhere else mm. because although there was a huge 
gay community in New York and in Los Angeles, there were still a lot of those people who were in the closet. Everybody who came to San Francisco came to be free, whether they were yeah. coming to be free as hippies or coming to be free as gay. So we didn't have that, you know, that large percentage of people who were going out and having lots of gay sex and gay life, but who were still closeted in their careers. Right. San and San Francisco was the first place where we really developed tremendous amount of uh, political power. There's that incredible article I read. I read it yesterday, actually, in Life magazine. Have you read it? It's, I think it was published in 1964. I've seen it, and for it's, sure. Yeah. And it's cool. I don't know how it titles it, but it's like San Francisco, the gay capital. And it's actually yeah. an amazing depiction of... I mean, obviously, the, art, the article's kind of slightly sympathetic, but I mean, it still is quite derogatory and offensive in some ways to LGBT people. But it's just quite interesting how it's like, even at that time, it was seen as a gay... Haven and uh, the way the article goes into the kind of underground cu cruising scene. This is really, really interesting. Well, um, um, I've done this series, I'm sure we'll talk about it yeah. in a bit, of uh, interviews with gay men who came out in the decades before Stonewall. Right. And um, it's called Conversations with Gay Elders. And one of the people specifically remembered that article in Life magazine as being a catalyst for him to want to come to San Francisco because he thought, wow. oh, that's where there are people like me. And I'm sure that's a very, very common story for people of his generation. Yeah. I'm sure I remember seeing it because we got Life magazine when I was a kid. Yeah. But I would have been nine years old at the time. So, right. you know, I don't think my parents hid it from me. I mean, I don't remember, remember anything like that. But it's a very, that is that article is a very pivotal, pivotal article. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, when you look back, I mean, actually before that even, when he, when Harvey Milk was assassinated, I mean, what was the mood? How did it affect you personally? Do you remember that period? Well, like... Oh, it's unforgettable. Right. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, prior to the uh, assassination was the period in which Harvey was in office. Right. And during that period, there was a huge nationwide backlash in which there were p initiatives put on the ballot to take away rights that gay people had been given or to deny gay people the right to certain kinds of jobs, particularly teaching. Right. And there was a woman named Anita Bryant who was really um, leading a lot of these crusades. And finally, that crusade came to California in the form of something called Proposition 6, mm. which was the Briggs Initiative. And the campaign against the Briggs Initiative was most visibly led by Harvey Milk and a lesbian named Sally Gearhart, who's still around, and they really became our heroes in a way because yeah. they were going statewide, traveling around, having television, televised debates with the opponents. Um, and, you know, for a long time, it looked like we were going to lose even in California. And so on the victory night, uh, you know, there was this absolutely unbelievable mm. celebration. Um, anybody who was there, you know, would... I still get chills even remembering that right. night. I mean, it was this incredible triumph and it really cemented Harvey as uh, really as a heroic and beloved figure in the community yeah. because he had really gone out there and done an incredible job. So, um, you know, the assassinations were not much after that. And yeah. uh, so, no, it was an unbelievably devastating moment. I was in Los Angeles and getting ready to fly back to San Francisco and my father came into the room and he said, there's been some terrible news. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I, there's not really even words for how, how horrible it felt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of moving on then from that period, we then move into the 80s and kind of the emergence of kind of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, 
I want to talk about your incredible documentary, which really affected me personally. But, I mean, do you... Obviously, the story of the documentary focuses on five key individuals, but I was also interested in your personal experience and whether when you were interviewing um, the people you chose for the documentary, did you have uh, similar experiences and feel kind of very compelled by their stories as well and whether your experience differed in any way? Well... A tiny step backward from that, when I I was working in politics for about a year and a half okay. when I first got to San Francisco, and I actually was a legislative assistant, don't ask me how this happened, wow. to the guy who replaced Harvey Milk, okay. to Harry Britt, who was appointed after Harvey was killed. And we had various volunteers working on various subjects, and there was a woman named Candace, who her area was health issues. She was a straight yeah. woman, but she was work, looking into gay men's health. And what was happening in that moment was there was a, a clearly a, an epidemic of hepatitis B among gay men. Yes. And I very clearly remember her saying, you know, you guys need to be thinking about this because there's this is a serious disease and you guys are all, you know, fucking willy-nilly and nobody's really thinking about the dangers that right. might lurk. And I'll never forget that because she was very prescient. This was before we knew about HIV, of course. Mm. This was probably 1979 or 1980. But, I mean, she was already warning at that point, you know, you guys are fucking a lot. And at some point, this is, you know, not going to be good for your health. Mm. So I do remember absolutely in the, there's a newspaper in San Francisco called the Bay Area Reporter. um, That has been around for a very long time. And I do remember reading a little article saying that the Centers for Disease Control had identified a small cluster of gay men that had a very rare pneumonia. Mm. This was in April of 1981. Um, and I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that's odd, and people would make comments. And then about two or three months later in June, there was a very similar article that talked about a cluster of gay men having this very strange cancer, a very rare cancer called Kaposi sarcoma. And that's the skin. That's the skin lesion. thing. Now, you know... Both of these things were bewildering. Uh, why on earth would these things be happening? And to some degree, I mean, I'm someone who has always paid attention to the news, and we would talk about it. You know, what, what is this? This odd thing that there's these two diseases that are showing up in these small groups of gay men. And, but we didn't think of it at that point as being potentially epidemic. We thought, oh, there's some odd situation with these particular men. And then I do recall even people making kind of dark humor jokes about it. It's like, oh, we have gay teachers now, we have gay this, we have a gay butcher, and we have a gay Volkswagen mechanic, now we even have our own cancer. You know, these were kind of dark jokes, but then, you know, all of a sudden someone you know would come down with this, and there wasn't a name for it at that point. We had no idea how it was transmitted, if it was sexually transmitted, if it was transmitted by kissing or mosquitoes or, you know, no one knew, and, you know, there was a, you know, was it caused by having, you know, had the clap too many times, having had too many STIs, or was it caused by swallowing too much cum, or was it caused by poppers? And so it started to instill this kind of growing sense of anxiety, because we really knew nothing about it. And you would have dinner conversations that would sometimes go in that direction, and people would start having these discussions, well, how many sex partners have you had? Because all of a sudden we started to think, well, maybe if we've had sex with 3,000 people as opposed to 60 people, which these numbers are still astonishing to most straight people. Um, but, but we there was just this, you know, no one really knew. And at least among people yeah. who were paying attention, 
the fear started quite early. And just two points on this, because it's just very interesting <clears throat> for someone, I think, of a younger generation who, you know, sex is so now anonymous, uh, synonymous, synonymous with kind of HIV or, you know, having to have uh, safe sex is really drilled into you from a young age. Was Were people practicing safe sex before HIV? Oh, God, no. I mean, the concept didn't even come didn't up come until up. like 83 or 84. And it was sort of invented as so a concept. So there was this real liberal, like it's such a, it's so alien to me to imagine that in terms of this really unabounded liberal attitude towards, well, liberal is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like free attitude towards sex where there is kind of, okay, fine, you can get other STIs, but there wasn't the same fear that people now attached to HIV compared to the other... Well, society-wide, it really started in the mid-60s with the birth right. control pill. Right. So that was for, you know, that was in a way the the thing that enabled sexual liberation in right. a way that had not been before because women had the pill and it was just an easier form of birth control, at least for men. Right. Um, but also in conjunction with the, the drugs and the counterculture and the politics of that era and women's liberation, there was this kind of increasing celebration of liberated sexuality as a really positive aspect of life. Right. And gay people, because we had been repressed for so long, and because it's two men instead of a man and a woman who yeah. often have different kinds of uh, attitudes towards casual sex. Right. Um, you know, men were fucking like bunnies. And it was very, <laughs> it was it was a very interesting I mean, it was wild. I mean, I remember at 22 in San Francisco, 22, 23, and it was, the atmosphere in the city was so intensely hypersexual, particularly really? for the gays. Re everywhere, on buses and on the streets. I mean, it was a very, very hypersexualized, more than I was personally comfortable with. Right. But it was, that was what was happening. And it was really, you know, it was exciting too. And then when it first hit the crisis and it was, was it, I think it was called, uh, I don't know if this is a UK thing, but it was called gay gays-related immune disease. GRID. It was the GRID, GRID, I think, was the first name. It was, yeah, gay-related immune so, deficiency. So there's this kind of, is that people could use that as a kind of a, as a logic or a rhetoric to kind of be, being gay is bad. Like, I mean, there's an insane um, kind of, uh, kind of, it gives people a rationale in which to hate or to prosecute or to discriminate. And to self-hate as well. But right. I mean, at least in the early years, we were the first community that it was identified in. And then the other communities that were quickly, it, there was Haitians for some reason, people from Haiti yeah. also were having it, and hemophiliacs, homosexuals, Haitians, and hemophiliacs, the three H's. Wow. But initially it was gay, yeah. and that remained the primary. And then eventually later it's, it started to be more visible in uh, intravenous drug users. Okay. Um, but yeah, the initial sense was that this was something that was happening within the gay community. So it fed into both... The, the right-wing hatred of homosexuals, yes. the religious presumption that was God's punishment for our uh, sinful behavior. And within gay people ourselves, you know, we were ten, 11 years after Stonewall here. We're a brand new Still identity. New, right. So I think it really fed into people's own internalized homophobia, like, oh my God, maybe we are sinners, and maybe we yeah. are. And so it was very complicated. And yet then there is the reality, well, how is it being transmitted, and what do we do about it? Right, so so f for you personally, was that I guess you have all those fears and just how you kind of address them. But I, I imagine in that period, and your film shows this, it's just kind of this huge fear that swept across San Francisco. Tremendous, and and again, as symptoms would start to be identified with this, right. because again, initially it was this strange 
uh, skin cancer, which was really incredibly disfiguring. Yeah. And the pneumonia, which was the thing that would kill people the quickest. I mean, people could die within a couple of days if they got this particular pneumonia. It was called pneumocystis pneumonia mm. um, because they had no functional immune systems. But even that people, you know, the fact that they even noticed that it was an immune disorder was not immediate. We just didn't know what was going was on. Yeah. But as these symptoms would come up, everybody was self-diagnosing. I mean, I remember my upstairs neighbor, every time he got a little spot on his skin or had a night sweat, you know, he would call me and I was the same. You know, we'd yeah. panic at the first sign of something being abnormal because we just didn't know what was going on or who had it or, you know, any of it. It was, it was terrifying. And yet, you know, it was also very easy to be in denial around it because that's what one does. Right. You know, exactly. in life most of the time. I really liked We Were Here because you take five stories and it, it makes it very personal. I think for younger generations, we were kind of fed stats and, um, you know, generalized fear of, or, or around HIV. But what I really, really loved was the way you just took five stories. And is it, I forget his name, is it Daniel? No. Daniel's the artist. In the Daniel's film. the artist. Yeah. Just really intense, shocking story where he kind of lost two lovers and he himself battles or did battle uh with hiv and now we've got much more advanced drugs and etc so there's kind of less of a, a fear of instant death but i just thought it was very um kind of moving way to show the aids crisis was it your was it originally your intention to just take five stories or did you kind of interview a lot of different people and then decide it that? really wasn't my intention to make a movie about aids at all um it was probably the last thing i ever would have imagined myself yeah. doing um partially just because on some level the we all slowly moved out of that period of, of mm. death and despair as the drugs got better and people tried to normalize their lives. So there wasn't like an end to the epidemic. It just things got better. Right. And it sort of became less and less the central focus. And the way the movie happened was that I had a boyfriend who was much, much younger than me. Yes. Who would hear me tell lots of stories about my time living in San Francisco and it was his idea basically that somebody needed to move make a movie about that for younger generations for particularly for younger generations of gay men which was my target audience with the yes. movie to understand what had happened and what our generation had gone through and how did we get to the point that we're at today so it was through David's uh, suggestion and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I thought initially that I'd probably do 40 or 50 interviews mm. and then try to figure out how the hell do I tell something that's so incredibly complex uh, on so many levels into a, a, a viable film. And actually, I only wound up doing nine interviews and using five of them. And yeah. I often say that if someone were to tell me that they were going to make a documentary about the history of AIDS in San Francisco and only interview nine people and only use five, you know, I would think half the, but that person killed or something because it was, it's in a way it's a terrible idea, but I think it did wind up working incredibly well. And it, I think that's partially because as you said, my story and all of those five people, they're all completely overlapping. So it was a story that was told by you know, for me as the filmmaker, as someone who had lived through that entire experience. And so I was not coming in as an outsider. I was, I was interviewing as someone who shared that experience. The only um, interesting parallel I can draw with your approach is actually, I know you're going to Berlin soon, but the Jewish monument um, in Berlin, there's a museum underneath it and they just take six stories for, to represent, you know, the six million Jews um, during the Holocaust who were murdered. 
Um, they just take six stories. And it's extremely powerful for the same reason I think your film's very powerful because it really personalizes the experience in some way. Um, so I don't know if you've ever Well, been... you know, it's interesting because I don't... I don't know that I've ever been asked what was the instinct that made that choice. Right. I mean, I knew... There was a film that came out in uh, 1977 called Word Is Out. Yeah. And it was the very first documentary made by gay people, about gay people, for gay people. And it was a very important and very beautiful film. And it was also done in a very simple way, basically with just talking head interviews with 26 different people, ranging from people who were like 18 at the time to people who had come out, well, who had been gay in the military in World War II. So it was a huge kind of survey of gay life circa mid-1970s and the different kinds of paths that people had taken. And that was a very uh, powerful film for me. And um, on some level, it was a model for me, but I knew that I did not want 26 people. I knew that I wanted to have a smaller number just because my intuition just goes in that direction. Right. And then once I started shooting, I realized, you know, I don't want 12 even. I want six or fewer. Okay. And I never had any doubts about that decision, although in many ways it's a very counterintuitive choice. So why exactly my intuition led me to that direction, to some degree, I don't know. Um, so I just wanted to think, ask you kind of how do you think perceptions of HIV have changed today? Well, particularly since doing the film, I mean, the yeah. big change has been prep. Right. Uh, really since, you know, since the very early 80s when it was realized that it was sexually transmitted and primarily through anal sex, uh, the idea was you had to use condoms. And there was the word barebacking for uh, having sex without a condom. And I don't think the word barebacking came into use really until significantly later because, you know, everybody was supposed to be using condoms. There really was no, it was, in, it was essentially a death wish prior to the drugs working. So then it became a kind of a controversial conversation because some people were kind of claiming barebacking as a defiant act. Um, in terms of reclaiming some sense of what they saw as the pre-AIDS freedom, which is a very complicated conversation. But PrEP really has changed things dramatically. Yeah. Something that is, it's a very delicate thing. I mean, I have a 19-year-old a friend who recently became infected with HIV, mm -hmm. and he was completely devastated by this. Right. So I think that the the reality of the prognosis being vastly different. I mean, for the most part, people take one to two pills a day right. and they will be fine. And not only will they be fine, they're, they're also unable to transmit the virus either, which dramatically helps in terms of people feeling um, uh, like pariahs because people uh, are afraid to have sex with them. But I still think, and there's a tremendous amount of talk about stigma, yeah. which does exist societally still significantly. But what I don't think we talk about a lot is just the personal sense of shame that oh, people sure. have yeah. around getting infected themselves. And, um, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble even for saying this, but I do, I, I don't know a single person who has gotten infected really since the, the early years of the epidemic who has not on some level gone through some of that feeling of, I knew how to prevent this, and I got infected anyway. Now, I totally understand that. And all of us, I mean, my 19-year-old friend who recently got infected, I said, you know, all of us make mistakes 
in any day of the week that could be disastrous. And most of them aren't. Most of the times those mistakes aren't made. But it's just part of life. And uh, this is just a particular area in which, and you know, particularly emotionally complicated area, which is our sexuality. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I think still for people who do seroconvert, who do become HIV positive at this point in time, it's still a complicated internal journey as well as navigating the, the potential areas of social stigma. It was a very scary thing, the idea of getting HIV. And, I mean, it still is, but it really like, drilled into me that you constantly have to be on visual and always use protection. And kind of going to the STI clinic was a very scary thing at first. I think with time, it's, we are, stigma is reducing. So I think if, if one gets it now, it's, there is less stigma around it. But it's still a lot of internal shame, I imagine, attached to it in some way. Similarly, like with coming out, I mean, it was oh, one of sure, the things yeah. that I liked about the movie Love, Simon, which was that on some level that movie was dealing with the reality that most of the difficulty in him coming out was internal. Right. His family wound up being quite accepting and certainly all of his friends were. So still the coming out process, regardless of what may be going on externally, can be and often is just for the person themselves. Yeah. Very challenging, even in this day and age. Not always, but certainly it's possible. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the first part of this two-part interview I have done with David. We will continue the conversation next week. You can follow the podcast Instagram at unmasked underscore pod. That's unmasked with a C, not a K. And you can follow me, Charlie, at charrob. That's char with double A. The podcast track is Justified by Payphone. And many thanks to them for allowing me to use it. You can find them on Instagram at Payphone London. That's Payphone with Neff. And just Payphone on SoundCloud. The album artwork is by the amazing Nina Biddle, who you can find on Instagram at Nina underscore Biddle. That's B-I-D-D-L-E. The incredible makeup is by Madam Madness, who you can find on Instagram at madam.madness, and that's madam with me. Thank you so much. <laughs>